You're listening to Tone Vendors, the Sound Designers Podcast. Let's do this. Hello and welcome to Tone Vendors. My name is Tim Muirhead and I will be your host for today along with co-host Teresa Morrow. Teresa, how are you feeling now that spring is in the air? <laughs> Such a loaded question, Tim. <laughs> I'm feeling okay. I'm no, we can finally get outside of it. Glad to be talking to you. So today we're talking about the new film, The Killing of Two Lovers. The film follows the emotional story of a small town family of five trying to navigate a marriage that may be coming to its end. While most films about very internal emotions and motivations rely heavily on score to guide the audience through, for this film, director Robert Machoin went rogue and chose not to have a traditional score. Instead, the film's themes are underscored by a kind of music concrete, tense metal strains and hits provided by our guests today, sound designer Peter Albrechtson and re-recording mixer David Barber. Joining us from Copenhagen, Peter Albrechtson is no stranger to Tonebenders. I think this appearance today sets a new standard as he will be our first four-time guest on the show. In the past, he's been on Tonebenders to talk about his work on the documentary genre of films, like the Oscar-nominated The Cave and Generation Wealth. We're happy to have him with us today to talk about his role as sound designer and re-recording mixer on The Killing of Two Lovers. Welcome back to the show, Peter. Thank you so much. Amazing. (laughs) We're glad to have you. Also joining us is David Barber. His past credits include the excellent series Pen15 and the MMA comedy Chick Fight. David worked with Peter as a re-recording mixer on The Killing of Two Lovers. David, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Well, our listeners have all heard about Peter before. Let's get a little (laughs) quick rundown on your career in sound, David. How do you get to where you are today? Oh, I went to college at UCSB in Santa Barbara and met up with a great singer-songwriter named Jeremy Kay, and we went into the music world and gave that a run, had some moderate success, some songs and films, and we toured opening for Crosby, Stills & Nash at their amphitheater tour, but never got that big break, that big single, that thing that was going to make it a lifestyle. So as we were getting older and tried to uh, figure out what was next, um, we had worked at Saban Entertainment. And I met some good people there and made some good friends and they used to come to shows. And one of them said, you should really consider Audio Post. And I had never really thought about going into sound for film before that point. And then I started to dig into it and meet some people. And it was just fascinating. And I felt like I was really going to be at home there. I I loved being in the studio. Actually, my favorite part of being a musician was being in the studio. I loved tracking. I loved mixing. I just loved that whole process. So to find out that there was a way to do that, to film and still be creative, I felt like I was at home. So, And then um, I just answered random ads, you know, 50 bucks to do sound on my short film. I answered a few of those ads, and one of them led me up to Juniper Post in Burbank, where this guy was doing his film, but he wanted to mix it there, and he wanted me to mix it, even though I had no idea what I was doing. I got to walk in the door pretending like I did. Um, and that movie actually never happened. The guy never finished it, but he walked me into the door at Juniper and I said, you guys looking for anybody to start working here? And they said, no, thank you. And I was on my way. One week <laughs> later, they called me back because they just got an influx of foreign m that they needed work on. And so they needed to staff up and I've been there ever since. 
random. You figured out quickly what M and E meant. <laughs> yeah, in a hurry. <laughs> yeah, and that was the that was the first thing I had to get into. So it was kind of great because you get to see and hear uh, everything that goes behind the dialogue. Totally. So let's uh, focus on uh, killing of two lovers now, mm-hmm. uh, Peter. When the director came to you. Did he already have the idea of a non-traditional score, or did you pitch that to him? I mean, I met Robert when uh, when I did his previous film, When She Runs, which he did together with his director partner, Robert Beck. I got introduced to them through this wonderful producer, Laura Hepperton, who I've been working with on a lo- lots of U.S. indies. And they brought the film to me, and I started working on it, and they came over to Copenhagen, and... The film was very much consisting of these long shots, and I just kept on putting sound into those because I thought that they were all so evocative. And Robert and Rodrigo were like, oh my God, we should have edited all these shots way longer so there would have been room for much more sound. <laughs> so um, that's what Robert then did with his next film, his next feature, The Killing of Two Lovers, where... The whole thing was that he designed this movie with sound in mind so that he shot the film with these long shots where the sound could really flesh out the scene in a way, like really leave space for evocative sound design. So it was very much a part of his mindset from the beginning, from when he was shooting the film. And then he edited the film himself so when he had done his first rough cut, he sent it to me and I did some of these sound collage sketches, which consists of all these sounds of metal and car doors and weird screeches and all this. When I sent that to Robert, I was like, okay, I'm happy that I met Robert before because otherwise he would think I'm a psychopath <laughs> or something. I mean, actually for a few days he was totally quiet, which meant that I was thinking, okay, now I'm fired. But then he sent the film back to me and I I had done this sound collage for the opening. And then suddenly it was like in the rest of the movie, I think in five, six places in the film. He really loved that approach. And that was kind of like the first kind of step into the abstract sound world of The Killing of Two Lovers. Hey, David. Doing Jeremy. On top of that, there's this whole thing about it taking place in in Utah in this really beautiful evocative landscape in this very very small town uh, I think it's like 500 people who live there Kanosh it's called that's an actual town Robert really loved that place and he was like I think we could use the sounds of that place for the film so he went there and recorded lots of ambiences and stuff and quite a lot of that is actually in the film and that inspired me for example i've never done a film with so many cows mooing on the soundtrack (laughs) 
And that was inspired by the recordings that Robert did himself, which I then built on. It was super inspiring. There's a cool thing about that place, which is like a broad valley or a plateau surrounded by mountains. It's the kind of environment where you can hear what's going on a long way away. So you managed to have little hints of sounds coming in all the time that with the sound collage work that you're talking about creates this eerie ambience that's sort of on the border of drone musical elements or something like that. And it just rides that line very finely. But it starts with that locale. You really feel like that sound could almost be the natural sound of that place. It was super interesting to build those ambiences. I mean, I'm in love with train sounds. And when I saw this place, I was thinking, okay, this is a perfect place for having a train passing in the distance. And when Robert heard that the first time, he was like, but there's no trains there. And then I was like, <laughs> but trains sound amazing. This will be great. And then he was like, yeah, it sounds amazing. Okay, let's go with that. <laughs> so let's do that. so it, it was constantly this thing about using almost like a documentary approach to this actual place. But as you also say, Teresa, something that we developed throughout the whole process was using the ambient sounds as as kind of like a foundation for a lot of abstract delays and weird sounds that kind of grows throughout the film. And you have all these layers of actual ambiences, but also layers of just weird stuff that I created and built on. And, and we had a lot of fun with creating the whole environment in that way. That was a very astute observation because there's a couple of beautiful scenic shots where your principal characters are very small on the screen and you, you see that the mountains and the valleys and the crevices and everything, it's just like a giant backstop for sound. And I thought Peter laid into that beautifully. Like that train could have been 50 miles away just echoing through there and just settling into this darkness. The, the ambience is... As much as the non-literal sounds, the ambiences really laid a mood. And with that, the trains coming in, you can't tell when they disappear because the metal and the echo kind of becomes part of the wind, but it's seamless. So you're just settled into that moment. And I thought that was one of the coolest things in the mix was hearing how he brought all of that all around you. Did you guys have rules for what sounds you were going to use? I, I almost was thinking as I was watching, like, oh, they took everything that was in the Foley and, like, only used that. Like, <laughs> so I was, like, wondering if you had a rule, like, where, what kind of sounds am I going to limit myself to in order to create a palette or it just... 
no rules. No rules. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Peter, uh, Peter. some some rules in a way, actually. For example, the sound collages were built from these car sounds. And that idea came from this whole story concept where the main character, David, pretty much lives in this car or he drives around all the time. So it felt like, okay, the the sounds of the car would be a great way of representing his inner voice in a way. Uh, a couple of years back, uh, Miguel Nilsson, who records a lot of sound effects for me, he, we did a big session in a in a car scrapyard, just smashing up a couple of cars, and a lot of those sounds are in Killing of Two Lovers. So, in a way, we had some rules, but then at the same time, something that I really loved about the process on this film was that we just kept on getting new ideas. I mean, Robert is so open for experimentation. I mean, some directors are like, okay, I know exactly what I want for this film. <laughs> And Robert is actually, in a way, quite the opposite. He's like, I would like to explore how to do the sound for this film. And let's go on an adventure together and try out things. So it creates this amazing creative environment where you just try out things all the time. And that went all the way to the mix where Dave and I just kept on like experimenting with all kinds of things until the very last day of the mix. It was just yeah. like, okay, how about if we make this line weirdly abstract or what happens if we send the foley through a weird delay effect or what? I mean, <laughs> it just kept on evolving. It was really an, a very inspiring way of working. Yeah, when I said no rules, I'm thinking in terms of what we did uh, on the mix stage. It was such an open collaboration where where no idea was a bad idea. And it was really the first time that I'd been in an environment like that where your hand wasn't getting slapped. There was absolutely none of that. Yes, there are rules in the themes that Peter used to create the soundscape of the film in terms of the story and the character. But when it came to putting it all together, uh, he referenced the Foley. They, it, during the title sequence... Um, David is running down the street and we're hearing a lot of the uh, introduction of the sound design of the film at this moment. It's just something that I would never think to try. And then Peter says, hey, let's uh, let's put some delay on those feet. And so, you know, about halfway down the street, start just running it through slapper and getting a 5-1 bounce. And then we ended up with this kind of cacophony of rhythms that started to blend in with the sound design. All you hear is his breath, the the atmosphere, and his feet, and then uh, the sound design. And then all of a sudden, his feet become part of it. It's like, just start echoing all the way around you until we come back to a very harsh final reality when we bring you back to the story. It's a really cool opening scene because we're, we're calling it sound design, but if it was orchestra, it would be the theme. It's brought back, it's repeated, but in this context, it's not an orchestra. It's metal grinds and hits and bends. But uh, it is interesting the way his actual body is the rhythm section of it the first time we hear it, because right. he's running down the street and you're hearing that. And you mentioned that uh, you use Slapper to put it in 5-1. That's something that I wanted to talk about the use of all the channels available to you in this film. You know, the, this is one of the very few films I've seen where dialogue doesn't just stay right up the middle, you know? 
and it, it works really well. And uh, we can throw up a link. You you spoke about it in a video, I believe, through Isotope, David, uh, about how you cleaned up the dialogue in order to be able to move it around a bit. I wonder if you could kind of go go down that road a bit with us. Sure. Um, we were pre-dubbing on, on different continents. And then we were putting it all together January down in Juniper and Burbank. And I had come up with this idea on this one scene because, like Peter was saying, with Robert, he does a lot of steady shots, which to me felt very, very observational as a viewer. You're sitting there, you're watching a play in that the action is happening uncut in front of you. And so there's one scene where the boys are watching TV in the house and David comes to the door and the mom is having an argument with the daughter and everything was coming out of the center speaker when I got the dialogue edit, as traditionally 95% of your dialogue will. And it struck me like there might be a cool way to establish the geography of this location if I can separate out some of those elements and have the dad enter from the right and then have the mom and daughter arguing in the kitchen off to the left and then have the boys still be watching TV up the center. So I did a pretty big experiment on that here at my stage and then I brought it to Peter and it was one of the first things I wanted to play for them because I said, okay, this is a little little abstract, um, but it's not just simple panning because from there it became well, let's track the character with their location on screen. And then you have to track them with their Foley. And then if you have production sound or PFX, you got to track them with that. And that opened up the opportunity to accentuate the separation of these characters. It actually fed perfectly into the story to the point where I thought, okay, it's cool for this one scene, but it's one of those things where if you do it in one scene, why don't you do it in the others? And then that became the next challenge. Because it wasn't 80 yard or conceived in this fashion, we had to jump through some hoops and figure out how to make that work. And that, that isotope demo goes into a little bit of the uh, techniques that I used to separate the voices so that we could carry them into different places. Yeah, um, maybe we'll link to that. Yeah, um, we will for sure. Sure. So I think yeah. maybe people will not realize that that's where they saw that scene before. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 Again, the reason that it worked is because it worked with the story. It wasn't a trick. It was just something that the more we did it in different scenes, the more you started to orient to the right or to the left to whoever was speaking, as opposed to just sitting there and watching an image and having the sound hit you. If they're having an argument and they're on opposite side of the screen, you're kind of tennis matching it back and forth. So um, it ended up working quite well. I think we were pretty pleased with how that came out. There's also a scene in the movie, uh, it's right off the top as well, where our main character is out front of a house and he hears coughing within the house. <laughs> and we soon find out that that's his father in there coughing up a storm. And then they have a conversation as he's traveling around within the house and we hear the father off screen the whole time. The mixing for it is done so well. First of all, I'm horrible at doing off-screen mixing. I, I, I can never get it right. But in films, when it's not done right, it ruins the scene. And this scene felt so perfect. It just felt exactly how it should as he's traveling around the different rooms of the house, hearing the dad's voice as he gets further and closer and he's in different orientations. That scene, how much effort and care went into that scene? <laughs> uh, a lot. Thank you. I'm glad that did work as intended. 
I don't know, Peter, how long did we spend on that scene? Because I know we revisited it at least three or four times throughout the mix going, did we get this just right? We would keep tweaking and fine tuning and making sure we got our uh, uh, orientations right. And some of it was uh, happy accidents where if you stayed with Clayne's love, then you get the dad in, in the other room. So there was a, a lot of mix and matching between separating the voices, um, sometimes from the same source, and then sometimes utilizing the quote-unquote wrong mic to achieve the, uh, the outcome that you wanted. Yeah, and then doing a lot of like reverbs. I mean, he's washing his clothes, or like there's a washing machine going on, and that has to change perspective whenever he changes perspective. I mean, when it works, it just feels like so invisible, and it takes a lot of hard work to get there. But mm -hmm. I mean, this was also one of the things that we just kept on developing. And Robert was also like, "Okay, maybe the maybe he doesn't need to say that line because that has a weird placement when he walks down the stairs. So let's just cut that line and then use that line instead, and having that a little earlier." So it was really this feeling of being on a team together and just like playing back and forth with the elements and. Uh, it was uh, very, very creative in that sense. Yeah, and again, with the group being so collaborative and just open to everything, it just spurred new ideas and new things, like Peter was saying with Robert saying, yeah, clip that line, because, yeah, you go through the whole scene, and you got one thing that um, doesn't work or that stands out, and then the director says, kill it. And you're like, yes, mute, and then you get what you want. The story also had some really cool moments built into it for sound. There's a couple major plot points that happen off screen, and we only kind of see our main characters reacting to them. One is when they're in the uh, truck on their date and uh, someone pulls up to the house. You know, without sound, that scene doesn't work at all. And there's another really interesting scene where he's driving on the highway and a truck nearly hits him and passes by. But visually, we don't see anything. It's all in the soundtrack. This is how Robert thinks. The way that he structures his scenes and the way that he shoots them, he thinks about sound. I mean, in the scene when David is in his car and there's this car passing, it had to feel like physical and threatening. And I mean, he's just sitting in his car and there's like a little bump in, and that's how they shut it. For something like that, we also had Clayne Crawford, the actor playing Dave, was actually on the stage and we did some ADR and he was super amazing at doing just efforts. We recorded lots of breathing and stuff like that to really enhance this subjective feeling of being so close to Dave all the time. We were able to really highlight that through both the quiet sounds, like you could hear his breathing, and then also these loud sounds. There's even a moment in the film where we go into total silence. So there's all the time this incredible dynamic, which is there because that's how Robert shut it. That scene that you're talking about, I was in the room when Peter was mixing the scene. Um, it's so visceral and so real that I never thought about the shot. It's like, oh, yeah, I guess we never see that truck, but it nearly killed us. There are a lot of moments like that where the sound tells you what's happening and you know exactly what's happening and you don't see a bit of it. 
Yeah, you're right. Now I'm like, Tim's really good at picking out stuff like that. I'm like, yeah. oh gosh, yeah. It just felt that's yeah, somewhat just watching the movie. Right. No stunt drivers, <laughs> no anything. You just shake the camera a little bit and let Peter take over. So something that I've had a lot of problem recording over the years, and I've needed a lot, is the sound of blowing leaves on pavement. Oh. It's a really hard sound to record. I know the exact shot you're talking about. There's one shot where you see the leaves, and there's other shots. Yeah. Uh, in particular, the big climactic scene at the end, where you hear the leaves, mm -hmm. you don't necessarily see them. But it's such an evocative sound, and... Uh, knowing because I've tried to record it before how difficult it is I kudos to you both for that because uh, it really played well <laughs> uh, I, I I live in Denmark where autumn is forever uh, <laughs> I remember like four or five years ago I was gonna do a sci-fi movie where it was about Copenhagen in the future where a lot of like hurricanes were hitting the city all the time so Mikkel Nielsen and I we decided that okay let's just record every wind every storm for a long time then suddenly like one storm after the other started hitting Denmark And of course, I didn't have the guts to go out and record them. But Miguel kept on recording them. And I got all these images from him like, now I'm standing at the harbor and everything is going crazy. And, and I was like, okay, you can, you can record this. Um, and so we have now so many recordings of wind going crazy in all kinds of ways. And some of that is like super noisy and really aggressive, but there's also stuff which is leaves rolling down the pavement and stuff like that. It, it could be like a wind world championship that we kind of like <laughs> fighting for over here, but it's definitely something that we've explored a lot um, and playing around with a lot. And then on top of that, there's... Uh, Uh, Heike Kossi, the amazing Foley artist that I work with, he is also really great at doing different textures like that. So when he's approaching the Foley, usually, I mean, of course, he does all the physical Foley, footsteps and stuff like that. But he also often does elements that I use for the ambiences. So actually often leaves and stuff like that are also done in foley so we kind of have both a lot of effects recordings but also foley recordings that help create extra layers for the ambiences it's this combination of a lot of different elements and it's something that we explored now for several projects and uh, we love those sounds Uh, it's so funny that you picked out that one sound because when I was on the stage and I heard him and, and, he, and it flows beautifully off with the visual uh, off to the left. And I just went, I, I, I exhaled. I was like, that was so cool. You know, <laughs> it, it was just... Like, I had a similar reaction. A yeah. similar reaction to the exact same element because you're right. I mean, I've hunted and pecked, you know, for a sound effect recording of just making it sound like it looks and this is just one the one scene that i'm thinking of there was just we had a big build up and off goes david and then there's just this whoosh of wind behind the vehicle and then just gentle little leaves kind of following him off to the left of the screen and it was so sublime and it doesn't cut yeah i think somebody else would have cut that shot like five seconds shorter or something oh yeah for too, sure yeah. so something that i wanted to talk about 
is uh, you, you guys were talking about your experimentation. Every movie that's ever made, except for Killing of Two Lovers, when someone is in a car, they pull up, the car is idling, and a conversation takes place. The mixer grabs the fader, and as the conversation's going on, the idling truck slowly comes down in volume. There's a scene in this film that's about a minute, minute and a half long with the truck idling, and it doesn't come down in volume. <laughs> it just sits there, almost like a, a drone it almost becomes. And then he eventually turns the truck off. But when he turned the truck off and it stopped, it becomes a story point because that sound's not there anymore, where every other movie, the sound would have been gone once they stopped. Not gone, gone, but lowered once the dialogue started. And I thought that was a really nice decision and worked out well. And I was wondering, was that an instinctive thing or... Uh, did did you try it pulling it down and was there any experimentation going on there it's i mean we spend a lot of time on the sound of that truck and <laughs> those engines it's a main character in the film yeah I'm absolutely like it's, and, it's uh, got as much screen time as any character <laughs> yeah what are you talking about david can you stop the truck please can what, you are you stop the truck? what are you doing what are you doing there's a lot of animals in it It's got tigers and lions. Uh, if you pitch those down, it's perfect for engine sounds like that. So every time he turns up, turns on the engine, you hear a lion roar or a tiger roar to kind of create this animalistic feeling. And then for these idling scenes, I actually did use it as almost like drones. So there's an engine idling, but then on top of that, I've got all these weird recordings of, I mean, broken cars and stuff. <laughs> and I'm often using that as kind of layers on top, pitching that in the same pitch as the idling so that it comes in and out and creates this, creates just this nuance and these subtle details. Because when you're mixing, you want to get rid of things that are monotonous. Like the reason you want to take down an engine is because it's boring. But if there's like small, tiny elements coming in and out all the time, it's interesting. It's a sound that you want to hear. And then it becomes a percussive, droney sound that is almost like a musical instrument in itself. So I was playing around a lot with that, just textures that came in and out. And some of those textures are obvious and some of those textures are very subtle. I mean, the grittiness of this film was very important. It should feel really like tactile and the sound of the film should feel like it's scratching your skin almost so that you really feel that it's uh, you're there with David the main character it's touching you through the sound and that's why I found it incredibly important to have a sound like an engine idling that it's not just going away that it keeps on going on and and keeps on having this gritty textures that constantly evolves and is that those kind of sounds it makes the whole film become more vibrant often these kind of textures can really become a, a character in itself in the film it's also kind of a serendipitous moment where the design and the story and the performances and then also technical limitations they all serve each other. The scene is between the husband and wife or the separated husband and wife. 
And so when Peter says the engine uh, can be monotonous, it's somewhat playing the lack of inspiration between the two characters. And then also on the dialogue editing side, you've got two different angles and they did have the engine on during the shots. So you will generally go with the noisier one and that'll be your smoothing element because it will mask the other one, which Ryan Coda did a great job on in this scene. And so without wanting to over-process any voices, I mean, certainly I could have shrunk it down to be be just a whisper, but then what I would have done to a lot of the subtleties in the performances would have been blown up in that. So we wanted to keep the performances there so the drone stayed with us. And then the design of the engine that Peter has around it was the glue that just kind of kept it all the way to the end. And that at the end of this kind of monotonous but tension-filled scene, when it goes away and you just go to the ambiences that Peter built around it, it you know it's gone. It, uh, it carries a lot of weight when it disappeared. Yeah, it was a, that was a great moment in the film that everything came together and served each other. I don't know, you're bringing up a lot of, a lot of great memories. <laughs> it's interesting that this film, uh, and I felt Nomadland had a similar thing with this, is that they were shot and basically completed before the whole pandemic started. But they really speak to what's going on within our lives during the pandemic, even though it's not a direct comparison. But, you know, we've all been locked down for years, over a year now, and everyone's relationships are frayed and tense. And the way this film kind of really digs into two people who are trying to do right by each other, but there isn't really a right answer necessarily. And they're just trying to make the best of a situation that just keeps getting worse and worse. Uh it really has parallels with what the world has become since you, the film was finished. And uh, the film really has an extra meaning in these times. And thank you very much for all the hard work you guys did on it. Because it really it really uh, gets you in the feels when you watch this movie. <laughs> well, that's, that's great to hear. I mean, it's definitely is. a very... It's a very emotional film. And it's very interesting that this thing about, like, when Robert said that we shouldn't have any music... Uh, then I was immediately thinking, but okay, whoa, whoa, it's a very personal drama. It's like a family drama. How, how are we going to do this? And the thing is, I feel that because there's no music, you get very, very close to the characters in a way. Like it feels like there's no filter. There's nothing that distances you to the to the characters, to the environment. It feels like you're there. So the film for me has this very interesting mix of feeling very realistic and almost documentary in a way. And then at the same time, it's incredibly subjective and so many abstract sounds are put into the sound design. I mean, so it has this very special balance between the the subjective and the the realism. And I I feel that it's something that... Robert, uh, as a director, is really good at his... It's also his own kids that are the kids in the film. So there's a lot of, like, very... There's a lot of reality in the film. There's a lot of real mm-hmm. life in the film. And then at the same time, he's not worried that everything has to be real. I mean, it can be surreal and it can be even stronger because of that. So this amazing attention to 
realistic detail and then at the same time not being afraid of being incredibly subjective. I feel that that's an amazing quality uh, in him as in Robert as a filmmaker. Yeah I, yeah, I agree completely. To have a palette like this on which to paint sonically, it's a gift. And it's also a big risk, you know? It's not what people are doing. It's not what people are used to seeing. So for him to put it on screen that way and to shoot things the way he did, like Peter was saying on his last film, oh, you know, after I hear what you can do, I'm going to make these shots longer. And he did. And a shout out to his kids who are just fantastic in the film. Uh, there's a scene in particular that it's a one shot where the you know the kids come out of the house they jump in the cab of the car they drive in the car it i think this shot it, it's what is it's at least 3 minutes long is it yeah it's a single shot 3 minutes with a lot of acting and a lot of interplay and you a don't, lot of people in the cab of one truck. <laughs> and a lot of people in the uh, No, it was, a, it was a great shot, and it didn't dawn on me because there was just a couple of plant mics in, in the truck to capture the whole thing. But, I mean, what a go-for-it kind of shot it was to get you from here to there. You know, we're going we're gonna to start here, we're going to end there, and what happens in between happens, and we're putting it on screen. And I think they did two takes total of that one. Um, but... <laughs> One of the nice things about not having score is that there wasn't anything in the film telling you how to feel about any given moment. Um, feel sad now. This is your sympathetic character. This is your here. There was there was none of that. And the the challenge that Peter rose to magnificently was don't make people feel a certain way, but without saying it, make people hear and feel what your main character is feeling. It was more about just getting that emotion in the audience of what this guy's going through, as opposed to telling the audience, you should like him, you should like her, you should uh, feel good here, feel bad here. There was none of that. It was just or a Or even very... naming the emotion. Like, it's yeah. like, you can be in David's perspective without mm -hmm. really knowing exactly what it is you're feeling, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, it just makes it makes you the viewer. You're literally you're in the story watching the story. I think it's a really good film for showing what people think can't work in a movie. <laughs> and seeing like, oh, you can take out those elements or you can substitute sound design for music. Like, there's just not a lot of good examples of films that do that successfully. Um, I think this one really is like it shows what can be done um, if you break that rule. Yeah. Well, it's also a matter of, as you mentioned many times, having the uh, ability to play around and find what works and not just kind of going, we know this will work. Let's get it done. We only have two days left in the mix room. We got to get this through, you know, being afforded the time and the luxury of uh, experimentation. And the the film is a tightrope walk because if if it doesn't work... You know, it, this film doesn't work, you know, the the way you guys have done it. And uh, it works. So congratulations on that, because I would have uh, 
I would have not slept for a couple months if I was working on this film. <laughs> I would have been extremely stressed on if this was going to work because I assume a lot of the things that you tried, you were hoping were going to work. And, you know, when it all came together in the mix, it, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, there it is. Robert is really good at trying out new things and also making us come up with ideas. And I did a lot of the sound editing here in Copenhagen. Ryan Kohler was doing the dialogue editing at, in California. And then uh, Robert actually came over for three days uh, to Copenhagen because we had to be in a room together to really try out these things. And uh, Robert talked a lot about music concrete, especially the rhythmic parts of music concrete. So he really wanted to explore, okay, what can we do with rhythm for these sequences? And being in a room together meant that we could really build on all this. And then he went back and I spent a couple of weeks more in Copenhagen and then we all met in LA for the mix. So it was this ongoing creative process where you never really knew how is this film going to sound? I mean, there's some movies you, you do where you think, okay, this is going to sound this way or that way. But for this film, it was just like, I have no idea how this will end up <laughs> sounding. And it was actually quite liberating. It can also make you very anxious in a way, but I feel that this feeling of trust that Robert had for us as sound designers and mixers, this feeling that you're there because you have a creative voice, that means so much for a process like this because otherwise you... I mean, I wouldn't have the guts to do a film like this. It's a, it's an adventure. It's like exploring things constantly, experimenting constantly. And then at the end, you finish up with something that you couldn't have imagined on your own. It's been a collaborative effort. All of us together, we made this. And none of us could have done this on our own. Yeah, it was a great journey. Well, thank you very much for being on the show with us today and telling us about your work on The Killing of Two Lovers. Uh, I highly suggest anyone listening go out and uh, find a way to watch this movie in a surround environment and uh, enjoy the uh, sound work that's been done to it because it's, uh, it's a really refreshing new, new way of watching a film for sure. Well, thank thanks you very so much, much for Tim. having me. Thank you. Filmbenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. 